Section two of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume six by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Elizabeth, Chapter one, Part two. In the treaty between Henry the Eighth and the Emperor Charles in fifteen forty five, there was a proposal to unite Elizabeth in marriage to Philip of Spain, who afterwards became the consort of her elder sister Mary the negotiation came to nothing the name of elizabeth was hateful to charles v as the child of anne boleyn during the last illness of the king her father elizabeth chiefly resided at hatfield house with the young prince her brother whose especial darling she was it is said she shared the instruction which he there received from his learned preceptors sir john cheek dr cox and sir anthony cook Elizabeth, after her accession to the throne, made Cox Bishop of Ely, and bestowed great favor on Cook and his learned daughters, Lady Bacon and Lady Burley. They were the companions of her youth, and afterwards the wives of two of her most esteemed ministers of state. The tender love that endeared Edward and Elizabeth to each other in infancy appears to have ripened into a sweeter, holier friendship, as their kindred minds expanded, for says sir robert naughton besides the consideration of blood there was between these two princes a concurrence and sympathy of their natures and affections together with the celestial bond conformity in religion which made them one in december fifteen forty six when the brother and sister were separated by the removal of elizabeth to enfield and edward to hertford the prince was so much afflicted that she wrote to him entreating him to be comforted and to correspond to her he replied in these tender words the change of place most dear sister does not so much vex me as your departure from me but nothing can now occur to me more grateful than your letters i particularly feel this because you first began the correspondence and challenged me to write to you i thank you most cordially both for your kindness and the quickness of its coming, and I will struggle vigorously that if I cannot excel you, I will at least equal you in regard and attention. It is a comfort to my regret that I hope shortly to see you again if no accident intervene. The next time the royal brother and sister met was on the 30th of January, 1547, when the Earl of Hertford and Sir Anthony Brown brought young Edward privately from Hertford to Enfield, and there, in the presence of the Princess Elizabeth, declared to him and her the death of the king their father. Both of them received the intelligence with passionate tears, and they united in such lamentations as moved all present to weep. Never, says Hayward, was sorrow more sweetly set forth, their faces seeming rather to beautify their sorrow than their sorrow to cloud the beauty of their faces the boy king was conducted the next day to london preparatory to his inauguration but neither the grief which he felt for the death of his parent nor the importance of the high vocation to which he had been thus early summoned rendered him forgetful of his sweetest sister as he ever called elizabeth and in reply to the letter of condolence which she addressed to him on the subject of their mutual bereavement he wrote there is very little need of my consoling you most dear sister because from your learning you know what you ought to do and from your prudence and piety you perform what your learning causes you to know 
in conclusion he compliments her on the elegance of her sentences and adds i perceive you think of our father's death with a calm mind by the conditions of her royal father's will elizabeth was placed the third in the order of the royal succession after himself provided her brother and sister died without lawful issue and neither queen catherine parr nor any future queen bore children to the king in point of fortune she was left on terms of strict equality with her elder sister that is to say with a life annuity of three thousand pounds a year and a marriage portion of ten thousand pounds provided she married with the consent of the king her brother and his council otherwise she was to forfeit that provision more than one historian has asserted that sir thomas seymour made a daring attempt to contract marriage with the youthful princess elizabeth before he renewed his addresses to his old love catherine parr he had probably commenced his addresses to the royal girl before her father's death for her governess catherine ashley positively deposed that it was her opinion that if henry the eighth had lived a little longer she would have been given to him for a wife letty tells us that the admiral offered his hand to elizabeth immediately after king henry's death she was then in her fourteenth year according to sharon turner the ambitious project of the admiral was detected and prevented by the council but letty who by his access to the aylesbury manuscripts appears to have obtained peculiar information on the private history of the reigns of henry the eighth and edward the sixth assures us that the refusal proceeded from elizabeth herself he gives us a truly frenchified version of the correspondence which passed between her and seymour exactly a month after the death of henry the eighth for seymour's letter in which he requests the young princess to consent to ally herself to him in marriage is dated february twenty sixth fifteen forty seven and elizabeth in her reply february twenty seventh tells him that she has neither the years nor the inclination to think of marriage at present and that she would not have any one imagine that such a subject had ever been mentioned to her at a time when she ought to be wholly taken up in weeping for the death of the king her father to whom she owed so many obligations and that she intended to devote at least two years to wearing black for him and mourning for his loss and that even when she shall have arrived at years of discretion she wishes to retain her liberty without entering into any matrimonial engagement four days after the admiral received this negative he was the accepted lover of his former fiancee the queen dowager catherine parr elizabeth who had been on the demise of the king her father consigned by the council of the royal minor her brother to the care and tutelage of queen catherine with whom she was then residing was according to our author much displeased at the conduct of that lady not only on account of the precipitation with which she had entered into a matrimonial engagement which was considered derogatory to the honour due to the late king's memory but because she had induced her to reject the addresses of the admiral by representing to her how unsuitable such an alliance would be to her in every point of view now although the queen dowager only performed her duty as the widow of the deceased majesty of england in giving such counsel to the orphan princess to whom she had undertaken the office of a mother her own proceedings by rendering the motives of her advice questionable 
excited reflections little to her advantage in the mind of elizabeth and perhaps sowed the first seeds of the fatal jealousy which afterwards divided them according to letty the princess mary who was no less offended than elizabeth at the indecorous haste of their royal stepmother's marriage wrote to elizabeth offering her a residence in her house entreating her to quit that of the queen dowager and come to her that both might unite in testifying their disapproval of this unsuitable alliance elizabeth however young as she was had too much self-command to commit herself by putting a public affront on the best-loved uncle of the king her brother who was by no means unlikely to supersede somerset in his office of protector neither did she feel disposed to come to a rupture with the queen dowager whose influence with king edward was considerable therefore in reply to her sister she wrote a very political letter telling her that it behooved them both to submit with patience to that which could not be cured as neither of them were in a position to offer any objection to what had taken place without making their condition worse than it was observing that they had to do with a very powerful party without themselves possessing the slightest credit at court so that the only thing they could do was dissemble the pain they felt at the disrespect with which their father's memory had been treated she excuses herself from accepting mary's invitation because she says the queen had shown her so much friendship that she could not withdraw herself from her protection without appearing ungrateful and concludes in these words i shall always pay the greatest deference to the instructions you may give me and submit to whatsoever your highness shall be pleased to ordain the letter is without date or signature for a year at least after the death of her royal father elizabeth continued to pursue her studies under the able superintendence of her accomplished stepmother with whom she resided either at the dower palace at chelsea or the more sequestered shades of hanworth throckmorton the kinsman of queen catherine parr draws the following graceful portrait of the manners of the youthful princess at this era of her life elizabeth there sojourning for a time gave fruitful hope of blossom blown in prime for as this lady was a princess born so she in princely virtues did excel humble she was and no degree would scorn to talk with poorest souls she liked well the sweetest violets bend nearest to the ground the greatest states in loneliness abound if some of us that waited on the queen did aught for her she passed in thankfulness i wondered at her answers which had been so fitly placed in perfect readiness she was disposed to mirth and company yet still regarding civil modesty the princess elizabeth while residing with queen catherine parr had her own ladies and officers of state and a retinue in all respects suitable to her high rank as sister to the reigning sovereign her governess mrs catherine ashley to whom she was fondly attached was married to a relative of the unfortunate queen her mother anne boleyn and it is to be observed that elizabeth although that mother's name was to her a sealed subject bestowed to the very end of her life her chief favor and confidence on her maternal kindred the learned william grindle was elizabeth's tutor till she was placed under the still more distinguished preceptorship of roger ashcombe the following letter from that great scholar was addressed to mrs catherine ashley before he had obtained the tutelage of her royal charge 
and both on account of the period at which it was written and its being in english is very curious gentle mrs ashley would god my wit wist what words would express the thanks you have deserved of all true english hearts for that noble imp elizabeth of your labor and wisdom now flourishing in all goodly godliness the fruit whereof doth even now redound to her grace's high honor and profit i wish her grace to come to that end in perfectness with likelihood of her wit and painfulness in her study true trade of her teaching which your diligent overseeing doth most constantly promise and although this one thing be sufficient for me to love you yet the knot which hath knit mr ashley and you together doth so bind me also to you that if my ability would match my good will you should find no friend faster he is a man i loved for his virtue before i knew him through acquaintance whose friendship i account among my chief gains gotten at court your favor to mr grindle and gentleness towards me are matters sufficient enough to deserve more good will than my little power is able to requite my good will hath sent you this pen of silver for a token good missus i would have you in any case to labor and not to give yourself to ease i wish all increase of virtue and honor to that my good lady elizabeth whose wit good mrs ashley i beseech you somewhat favor blunt edges be dull and endure much pain to little profit the free edge is soon turned if it be not handled thereafter if you pour much drink at once into a goblet the most part will dash out and run over if ye pour it slowly you may fill it even to the top and so her grace i doubt not by little and little may be increased in learning that at length greater cannot be required and if you think not this gentle mrs ashley yet i trust you will take my words as spoken although not of the greatest wisdom yet not of the least good will i pray commend you to my good lady of troy and all that company of godly gentlewomen i send my lady elizabeth her pen an italian book a book of prayers send the silver pen which is broken and it shall be mended quickly i commit and commend you to all the almighty's merciful protection your ever obliged friend roger ashcombe to his very loving friend mrs ashley on the death of his friend william grindle ashcombe was appointed to the lady elizabeth then about sixteen with whom he read nearly the whole of cicero's works livy the orations of Socrates, the tragedies of sophocles and the new testament in greek some disturbances in ashcombe's own family separated him from his royal pupil in fifteen fifty sufficient account has been given in the memoir of queen catherine parr of the rude and improper conduct of the lord admiral sir thomas seymour to the fair young royal student while under the care of his consort the queen dowager at chelsea hanworth and seymour place the boisterous romping to which the queen was at first a party was repeated in her absence and when mrs ashley remonstrated with the admiral on the indecorum of his behavior to the young princess and entreated him to desist he replied with a profane oath that he would not for he meant no harm few girls of fifteen have ever been placed in a situation of greater peril than elizabeth was at this period of her life and if she passed through it without incurring the actual stain of guilt it is certain that she did not escape scandal 
the queen dowager apparently terrified at the audacious terms of familiarity on which she found her husband endeavouring to establish himself with her royal stepdaughter hastened to prevent further mischief by effecting an immediate separation between them the time of elizabeth's departure from the house and protection of queen catherine parr was a week after whitsuntide fifteen forty eight she then removed with her governess mrs catherine ashley and the rest of her establishment to cheston and afterwards to hatfield and ashridge that catherine parr spoke with some degree of severity to elizabeth on the levity of her conduct there can be no doubt from the allusions made by the latter in the following letter to the expressions used by her majesty when they parted nothing however can be more meek and conciliatory than the tone in which elizabeth writes although the workings of a wounded mind are perceptible throughout the penmanship of the letter is exquisitely beautiful the princess elizabeth to catherine parr although i could not be plentiful in giving thanks for the manifold kindnesses received at your highness's hand at my departure yet i am something to be borne withal for truly i was replete with sorrow to depart from your highness especially seeing you undoubtful of health and albeit i answered little i waited more deeply when you said you would warn me of all evilnesses that you should hear of me for if your grace had not a good opinion of me you would not have offered friendship to me that way at all meaning the contrary but what may i more say than thank god for providing such friends for me desiring god to enrich me with their long life and me grace to be in heart no less thankful to receive it than i am now made glad in writing to show it and although i have plenty of matter here i will stay for i know you are not quick to recede from cheston this present saturday your highness's humble daughter elizabeth superscribed to the queen's highness from another letter addressed by elizabeth to her royal stepmother which has been printed in the memoir of that queen there is every reason to believe that they continue to write to each other on very friendly and affectionate terms queen catherine even sanctioned a correspondence between her husband and the princess and the following elegant but cautious letter was written by elizabeth in reply to an apology which he had addressed to her for not having been able to render her some little service which he had promised the lady elizabeth to the lord admiral my lord you need not send an excuse to me for i could not mistrust the not fulfilling your promise to proceed from want of good will but only that opportunity served not wherefore i shall desire you to think that a greater matter than this could not make me impute any unkindness in you for i am a friend not one with trifles nor lost with the like thus i commit you and your affairs into god's hands who keep you from all evil i pray you to make my humble commendations to the queen's highness your assured friend to my little power elizabeth catherine parr during her last illness wished much to see elizabeth and left her in her will half her jewels and a rich chain of gold she had often said to her god has given you great qualities cultivate them always and labor to improve them for i believe that you are destined by heaven to be queen of england one of the admiral's servants named edward came to cheston or chesent 
where the lady elizabeth was then residing with her governess and train and brought the news of queen catherine's death he told the officers of elizabeth's household that his lord was a heavy that is to say a sorrowful man for the loss of the queen his wife elizabeth did not give seymour much credit for his grief for when her governess mrs ashley advised her as he had been her friend in the lifetime of the late queen to write a letter of condolence to comfort him in his sorrow she replied i will not do it for he needs it not then said mrs ashley if your grace will not then i will she did and showed the letter to her royal pupil who without committing herself in any way tacitly permitted it to be sent lady turwit soon after told mrs ashley that it was the opinion of many that the lord admiral kept the late queen's maidens together to wait on the lady elizabeth whom he intended shortly to marry mrs ashley also talked with mr turwit about the marriage who bade her take heed for it were but undoing if it were done without the council's leave at christmas the report became general that the lady elizabeth should marry the admiral but mrs ashley sent word to sir henry parker when he sent his servant to ask her what truth were in this rumour that he should in no wise credit it for it was nay thought nay meant mrs ashley however by her own account frequently talked with elizabeth on the subject wishing that she and the admiral were married elizabeth who had only completed her fifteenth year two days after the death of queen catherine parr had no maternal friend to direct and watch over her there was not even a married lady of noble birth or alliance in her household a household comprising upwards of one hundred and twenty persons so that she was left entirely to her own discretion and the counsels of her intriguing governess mrs catherine ashley and the unprincipled cofferer or treasurer of her house thomas perry in whom as well as in mrs ashley she reposed unbounded confidence these persons were in the interest of the lord admiral and did everything in their power to further his presumptuous designs on their royal mistress letty who from his reference to the aylesbury manuscripts had certainly the best information on the subject gives elizabeth credit for acting with singular prudence under these circumstances he tells us that very soon after the death of queen catherine the lord admiral presented himself before elizabeth clad in all the external panoply of mourning but having as she suspected very little grief in his heart he came as a wooer to the royal maid from whom he received no encouragement but he endeavoured to recommend his cause to her through her female attendants one of her bedchamber women of the name of montjoy took the liberty of speaking openly to her youthful mistress in favour of a marriage between her and the admiral enlarging at the same time on his qualifications in such unguarded language that elizabeth after trying in vain to silence her told her at last that she would have her thrust out of her presence if she did not desist there can however be little doubt that a powerful impression was made on elizabeth by the addresses of seymour seconded as they were by the importunity of her governess and all who possessed her confidence the difference of nearly twenty years in their ages was probably compensated by the personal graces which had rendered him the adonis of her father's court and she was accustomed to blush when his name was mentioned 
and could not conceal her pleasure when she heard him commended in a word he was the first and perhaps the only man whom elizabeth loved and for whom she felt disposed to make a sacrifice she acknowledged that she would have married him provided he could have obtained the consent of the council to have contracted wedlock with him in defiance of that despotic junta by which the sovereign power of the crown was then exercised would have involved them both in ruin and even if passion had so far prevailed over elizabeth's characteristic caution and keen regard to her own interest seymour's feelings were not of that romantic nature which would have led him to sacrifice either wealth or ambition on the shrine of love my lord admiral had a prudential eye to the main chance and no modern fortune-hunter could have made more particular inquiries into the actual state of any lady's finances than he did into those of the fair and young sister of his sovereign to whose hand he the younger son of a country knight presumed to aspire the sordid spirit of the man is sufficiently unveiled in the following conversation between him and thomas parry the cofferer of the princess elizabeth as deposed by the latter before the council when i went unto my lord admiral the third and fourth time says parry after he had asked me how her grace did and such things he had large communications with me of her and he questioned me of many things and of the state of her grace's house and how many servants she kept and i told him a hundred and twenty or a hundred and forty or thereabouts then he asked me what houses she had and what lands i told him where the lands lay as near as i could in northamptonshire in berkshire lincoln and elsewhere then he asked me if they were good lands or no and i told him they were out on lease for the most part and therefore the worse he asked me also whether she had the lands for term of life or how and i said i could not perfectly tell but i thought it was such as she was appointed by her father's will and testament the king's majesty that then was the admiral proceeded to inquire if she had had her letters patent out and parry replied no for there were some things in them that could not be assured to her grace yet probably till she was of age and that a friend of her grace would help her to an exchange of lands that would be more commodious to her the admiral asked what friend and parry replied morrison who would help her to have you elm for apethorpe on which the admiral proposed making an exchange with the princess himself for some of their lands and spake much of his three fair houses bewdley sudley and bromham and fell to comparing his housekeeping with that of the princess and that he could do it with less expense than she was at and offered his house in london for her use at last he said when her grace came to ashridge it was not far out of his way and he might come to see her in his way up and down and would be glad to see her there parry told him he could not go to see her grace till he knew what her pleasure was why said the admiral it is no matter now for there hath been a talk of late that i shall marry my lady jane adding i tell you this merrily i tell you this merrily when these communications had been made to the lady elizabeth she caused mrs ashley to write two letters to the admiral one declaring her good will but requesting him not to come without the council's permission for that purpose the other declaring her acceptation of his gentleness and that he would be welcome but if he came not she prayed god to speed his journey 
concluding in these words from Ashley herself. No more hereof until I see my lord myself, for my lady is not to seek his gentleness or good will. There is no absolute evidence to prove that Seymour availed himself of this implied permission to visit the princess, but every reason to suppose he did, and that by the connivance of her governess and state officers, he had clandestine interviews with the royal girl, at times and places, not in accordance with the restraints and reserves with which a maiden princess of her tender years ought to have been surrounded. Reports of a startling nature reached the court, and the Duchess of Somerset severely censured Catherine Ashley, because she had permitted my lady Elizabeth's grace to go one night on the Thames in a barge, and for other light parts, saying, that she was not worthy to have the governance of the king's daughter. When Elizabeth was preparing to pay her Christmas visit to court, she was at a loss for a town residence, Durham House, which had formerly been granted to her mother, Queen Anne Boleyn, before her marriage with King Henry, and to which Elizabeth considered she had a right, having been appropriated by King Edward's council to the purpose of a mint. Elizabeth made application by her cofferer, Thomas Perry, to the Lord Admiral for his assistance in this matter, on which he very courteously offered to give up his own town house for her accommodation and that of her train, adding, that he would come and see her grace. Which declaration, says Perry, she seemed to take very gladly and to accept it joyfully, on which, continues he, casting in my mind the reports which I had heard of a marriage between them, and observing that at all times when, by any chance, talk should be had of the Lord Admiral, she showed such countenance, that it should appear she was very glad to hear of him, and especially would show countenance of gladness when he was well spoken of, I took occasion to ask her whether, if the council would like it, she would marry with him? To which she replied, when that comes to pass, I will do as God shall put into my mind. I remember well, continues Perry, that when I told her grace how the Lord Admiral would gladly, she should sue out her letters patent, she asked me, whether he was so desirous or no, indeed. I said, yes, in earnest he was desirous of it, and I told her farther, how he would have had her have lands in Gloucester, called Prisley, as in parcel of exchange, and in Wales. And she asked me, what I thought he meant thereby, and I said, I cannot tell, unless he go about to have you also, for he wished your lands, and would have them that way. This broad hint Elizabeth received, as it appears, in silence. But when Perry proceeded to inform her, that the Admiral wished her to go to the Duchess of Somerset, and by that means, to make suit to the protector for the exchange of the lands, and for the grant of a house, instead of Durham House, for herself, and so to entertain the Duchess for her good offices in this affair, the spirit of the royal tutor stirred within her, and she said, I dare say he did not say so, or would. Yes, by my faith, replied the cofferer. Well, quoth she, indignantly, I will not do so, and so tell him. She expressed anger that she should be driven to make such suits, and said, In faith I will not come there, nor begin to flatter now. Shortly after, the Lady Elizabeth asked Perry, whether he had told Kate Ashley of the Lord Admiral's gentleness and kind offers, and those words and things that had been told to her. I told her no, said Perry. 
Well, said Elizabeth, in any wise go tell it her, for I will know nothing, but she shall know it. In faith, I cannot be quiet until ye have told her of it. When Perry told the governess, she said, that she knew it well enough, and Perry rejoined, that it seemed to him that there was good will between the Lord Admiral and her grace, and that he gathered both by him and her grace. Oh, said Mrs. Ashley, it is true, but I had such a charge in this, that I dared nothing say in it, but I would wish her his wife of all men living. I wis, quoth she, he might bring the matter to pass at the council's hand well enough. The long gossiping conversation between the cofferer and the governess then followed, in which Mrs. Ashley, after adverting to some passages in the early stage of the princess's acquaintance with the admiral, and the jealousy Queen Catherine Parr had conceived of her, suddenly recollected herself, and told Perry she repented of having disclosed so many particulars to him, especially of the late queen finding her husband, with his arms about the young princess, and besought the cofferer not to repeat it, for if he did, so that it got abroad, her grace should be dishonored for ever, and she likewise undone. Perry replied, that he would rather be pulled with horses than he would disclose it. Yet it is from his confession that this scandalous story has become matter of history. While the admiral was proceeding with this sinister courtship of Elizabeth, and before his plans were sufficiently matured to permit him to become a declared suitor for her hand, Russell, the Lord Privy Seal, surprised him by saying to him, as they were riding together, after the protector Somerset, to the Parliament House, My Lord Admiral, there are certain rumors brooded of you, which I am very sorry to hear. When Seymour demanded his meaning, Russell told him, that he was informed that he made means to marry either the Lady Mary, or else with the Lady Elizabeth, adding, My Lord, if ye go about any such thing, ye seek the means to undo yourself, and all those that shall come of you. Seymour replied, that he had no thought of such an enterprise, and so the conversation ended at that time. A few days afterwards, Seymour renewed the subject in these words, Father Russell, you are very suspicious of me, I pray you tell me, who showed you of the marriage, that I should attempt it whereof, ye break with me the other day? Russell replied, that he would not tell him the authors of that tale, but that they were his very good friends, and he advised him to make no suit of marriage that way. Though no names were mentioned, Seymour, who well knew the allusion was to the sisters of the sovereign, replied significantly, it is convenient for them to marry, and better it were, that they were married within the realm, than in any foreign place without the realm, and why, continued he, might not I or another man, raised by the king their father, marry one of them? Then said Russell, My lord, if either you, or any other within this realm, shall match himself in marriage, either with my lady Mary, or my lady Elizabeth, he shall undoubtedly, whatsoever he be, procure unto himself the occasion of his utter undoing, and you especially above all others, being so near alliance to the king's majesty. And after explaining to the admiral the perilous jealousies which would be excited by his marrying either of the heirs of the crown, he asked this home question, And pray you, my lord, what shall you have with either of them? He who marries one of them shall have three thousand a year, replied Seymour. My lord, it is not so, said Russell, 
for ye may well be assured that he shall have no more than ten thousand pounds in money plate and goods and no land and what is that to maintain his charges and estate who matches himself there they must have the three thousand pounds a year also rejoined seymour russell with a tremendous oath protested that they should not and seymour with another asserted that they should and that none should dare to say nay to it russell with a second oath swore that he would say nay to it for it was clean against the king's will and the admiral profligate as he was finding himself outsworn by the hoary-headed old statesman desisted from bandying oaths with him on the subject the most remarkable feature in this curious dialogue is however the anxiety displayed by seymour on the pecuniary prospects of his royal love he sent one of his servants about this time to lady brown celebrated by surrey under the poetic name of fair geraldine who appears to have been a very intimate friend and ally of his advising her to break up housekeeping and to take up her abode with the lady elizabeth's grace to save charges lady brown replied that she verily purposed to go to the lady elizabeth's house that next morning but she appears to have been prevented by the sickness and death of her old husband it was suspected that seymour meant to have employed her in furthering some of his intrigues the protector and his council meantime kept a jealous watch on the proceedings of the admiral not only with regard to his clandestine addresses with the lady elizabeth but his daring intrigues to overthrow the established regency and get the power into his own hands there was an attempt on the part of somerset to avert the mischief by sending the admiral on a mission to boulogne and the last interview the princess elizabeth's confidential servant perry had with him in his chamber at court where he was preparing for this unwelcome voyage the following conversation then took place the admiral asked how doth her grace and when will she be here perry replied that the lord protector had not determined on the day no said the admiral bitterly that shall be when i am gone to boulogne perry presented mrs ashley's commendations and said it was her earnest wish that the lady elizabeth should be his wife oh replied the admiral it will not be adding that his brother would never consent to it End of section 2